So excited to host you on our podcast, uh, Aaron. I, I've read your book. I also went to INSEAD like you did. And uh, when I read the book, so many memories from the classroom came back to me and I was able to put a lot of things uh, in perspective, both uh, in classroom and life after INSEAD. So thank you, first of all, for writing this book. Um, but before we get started, tell us a bit about yourself. You've had a really interesting career from Peace Corps to an MBA at INSEAD to now in academia writing best-selling books one after the other. What's been driving you? Yeah, so um, I'm a professor, as you said, in the organizational behavior department at INSEAD, and I study culture in the workplace. And I'm actually from a very monocultural place. So I was raised in the Midwest of the US in a place called Minnesota. And it was then as an adult that I started moving to other countries. So first I moved to, as you said, to, um, to Southern Africa where I was a volunteer teacher. And then I moved to Southeast Asia for a while. And then 21 years ago, I moved to Paris. So I live in Paris currently. My husband is French. My children have recently told me that they are French. <laughs> um, and I spent most of my career working on this system that I call culture mapping, which basically breaks culture down into eight behavioral scales. So we can look at how cultures build trust differently in different parts of the world or how they make decisions differently in different countries. And then we can map countries up next to one another in order to think about how to lead more effectively in different parts of the world or how to improve our global collaboration. So that's been my main focus. And I wrote my first book, The Culture Map, about that topic. And then lately I've been focusing more on corporate cultures, uh, which was the topic of my newest book, No Rules Rules. Yeah. Um, how did you get interested when you went to INSEAD as an MBA student? First of all, why did you go to INSEAD? What was driving you? And how did life in academia happen? It's an unconventional choice for many MBA candidates. Yeah, so that actually was also an, an unconventional path. So I attended the executive MBA program at INSEAD and I was already running a program, I was already running a, the office of a cross-cultural consulting firm in Paris when I started that. So that's actually just like a crazy story. I was attending the executive MBA program and they were looking, INSEAD was needing people to do more work in this, in this field. So I just collab started collaborating with some of my professors and had the opportunity to start teaching in some of the classes and one thing led to another. So that wasn't like a plan, it just happened that way. Yeah, um, and your interest in cultural intelligence, different cultural contexts, um, uh, must have been like something that was introduced to you by your experiences or your curiosities, because as you said, you grew up in a fairly monolithic culture. How, what was the origin? Was your mom a huge influence? You reference her in the book. How, how did it happen? Well, my parents are both psychologists. Okay. Uh, so of course, what I study is the psychology of groups, right? Uh, so culture is the site. If you study culture, what you study is the psychology of groups. And um, my parents studied, yes, yeah, the psychology of individuals. So I guess I got my love of my love of hu understanding human behavior from my family. But my love of travel, I, that was my own. <laughs> um, this book, I mean, I think it's a fascinating book, your latest bestseller, New Rules Rules. What I find really interesting is that it's as popular in India as it is in UK, as it is in the US, and as it is in the Middle East. Um, and because network capital is a fairly global presence. So I find that when we talk about new rules, rules, it strikes a chord with everybody. So 
um, there's something in the book uh, which transcends, I think, Netflix as a company, which transcends uh, one nationality or culture. It's something really fundamental that, that you touch upon in the book. I loved how it started, though. So Reed Hastings, um, the CEO of Netflix, just sent you an email, a short, pithy email. And uh, what was your reaction when you got that email? Yeah, so that was, I mean, it's actually just so um, typical of Reed, which is just to make himself seem like such an ordinary guy. (laughs) So after I wrote my first book, The Culture Map, often people, you know, readers would send me a little email saying something about how, how they experienced the book. And one day I was looking through a bunch of those emails and one of them, which looked just like the others, said, uh, hi, Aaron, I was in the Peace Corps near you, where you were 10 years earlier than you were. I've read your book, The Culture Map, and I'm having the other managers in my company read it too. I'm the CEO of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was my first introduction to read. <laughs> and then what was your reaction like? Well, so then he said, he said, I'm, uh, I'm the CEO of Netflix, and I hope we can meet sometime. And because that was- a, Paris that Right, and that was at the end of 2015. Uh, At that time, Netflix was a mostly American company, but they were getting ready for this enormous international expansion. So they moved into 130 countries all in the same day in January of 2016. So I started working with him, you know, quite soon on getting ready for that international expansion on mapping out the Netflix corporate culture and comparing the Netflix corporate culture to the different countries they were going to be moving into. So that was how our relationship started. The book came later. Book came later, I see. when you saw the Netflix culture deck, which is really popular amongst MBA students, Silicon Valley Valley folks, uh, you said that you loved its honesty, but loathed its content. Um, tell us more about that. Yeah, well, um, I before I came across that culture deck, I actually had never been particularly interested in any company's corporate culture. And I was fascinated by national cultures, but I always found that the way that companies articulated corporate culture seemed to have very little to do with the way that people actually behaved in the company. Uh, and. I, I, I just found it kind of boring to hear companies talking about, you know, good judgment and integrity and respect. Uh, so then when I came across the Netflix culture deck, which is this set of slides that Reed released on the internet now a bunch of years ago and have been downloaded like something like 20 million times now. So wow. really really popular, but also provocative slides. So when I started looking through those, I had quite a strong emotional reaction. And the first was that I felt just this breath of relief, like finally a company that speaks honestly about what goes on in their organization and is willing to articulate things that um, that are that are real, that really help their employees deal with dilemmas and tensions in the workplace instead of just speaking in these like absolute positives. But I also was quite taken aback by some of the things that were in that deck. And you know, the big one is that there's this slide that says at Netflix, adequate performance gets a generous severance. Right. And when I read that, I was quite confused about how that could play out in such an innovative environment because at INSEAD, we spent all this time studying the fact that psychological safety would lead to innovation. 
And here was a company that said, don't focus on this making, helping your employees feel safe. Tell them if they don't perform at the highest levels that they will be kicked out of the company. Um, so that was, you know, that was quite, it was quite startling. And there are other things in the deck, right? Like yeah. um, Netflix, our vacation policy is there is no vacation policy. Right. And at Netflix, our expense policy is act in Netflix's best interest. And I just couldn't figure out. I mean, I understood how you could use to have that, that lack of policy or rules in a small company where everyone could kind of keep tabs on one another. Right. But in a company with thousands of people, how could you have that, that absence of policy or rules without having just incredible inefficiency? So right. that, was, that's, that was my first reaction. Got it. Um, but Netflix was also doing really well at that time. How did you and Reed sort of decide that this is something that will perhaps shape the strategy and the future of the company? Was there, were there some challenges that you had spotted early on that you uh, thought would blow up? Because when things are going well, companies tend to be uh, you know, nonchalant about such things. Yeah, well, when I first met Reed, before we started talking about the book, his question to me, so one of the big aspects of Netflix culture is candor, you know, radical candor, being, giving lots and lots of, of straight feedback. And his question to me when I first met him is, how will we, will, Aaron, do you think that we can take these principles that we live in Netflix in California, and do you think that we can pass them around the world? Right. And, uh, my answer to him, he didn't follow my advice. <laughs> I mean, I said to him at that time, I said, well, you know, Reed, I don't understand. I don't think that you can take that level of candor and apply that in a place like Japan or Singapore or Brazil. I, I just don't, don't see how you can do that without it destroying the relationships and the goodwill in the office. And I remember he uh, said to me, well, um, you know, that is fundamental, that, can that candor is fundamental to our success. So I can't, I can't change that one. Right. Do you have something else for me? <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, well, you know, if you really can't change the candor, the other thing you could work on is being more relationship oriented. Right. At that time, it was a really task oriented company. And I was like, you know, if you're going to be really direct with candor, but not focus on building the relationships in the organization, then that's going to just be a recipe for disaster in many countries of the world. And he said, oh, that we can do. And then he, <laughs> he really started focusing on relationship building more. Right. And you've also had some, uh, you know, uh, the book has many examples of uh, how different cultures uh, can, you know, interpret uh, different things to different ways. But you've had some personal experience as well when you as an American trying to make a presentation, say, in Paris or some part of Asia, the response has been mixed until you had to adapt uh, your style uh, to convey the message. Why is this style so important um, uh, when we're trying to land the message uh, even in written communication, does it come out when, say, an American is writing versus, say, a French person's writing? 
Oh, well, sure. So that's, I think, the most important thing that we need to recognize when we're working internationally is that even if you think culture is not impacting you, it probably is. <laughs> and when we have these moments of feeling that something is a little bit awkward or maybe that's the person we're working with hasn't responded in the way that we expected, it's really important that we can ask ourselves the question, you know, is this cultural or is this personal? And, you know, my first book, The Culture Map, I really help you answer those questions. I'll just give you like a very simple example. Example. So in, uh, in my culture, in the American culture, it's very common and appreciated that after a telephone call that I would do a recap in writing of everything that we've said right. and I would send that out to you. I was working with someone from the Emirates a while ago from Dubai and he said, you know, in my culture, if we have a discussion on the telephone and we make some decisions verbally, and we have a little bit of a relationship, that would really be enough for me. But my American colleagues, when, after the call, they get off the phone and they put into writing everything we've decided. Right. When I get that, I always have this like emotional reaction, like, oh, they don't trust me. Right. Or they don't think I'm good on my promise. And that leads me to not feel close to them. Right. So these are just very simple things that practices that we use in different parts of the world that may have re reactions or ramifications that we hadn't expected when we're working yeah. in other countries. And there are some fascinating examples in the book, which we'll cover um, in, in the later part of this podcast. What I loved was the clear structuring that the section one, two, three, four, and each of them, it's almost like, you know, me running network capital, which we like to call the Netflix for careers, is, is hugely instructional because even for me, when I apply these principles, I can see, oh, wow, this is how you actually land your message. This works, this doesn't. Uh, in the first part, what really jumped out me was talent density, uh, where you talk about stunning colleagues. Uh, and uh, when I read it, I thought, uh, you know, uh, something different. But the more I dived into it, I realized that uh, 2001 layoffs were, a, were an important uh, milestone uh, in, in Reed's life. Um, how, how did you help uh, when you were writing this particular segment of analyzing or reflecting on that 2001 layoff? How did you help analyze each other about the concept of talent density towards the future of shaping Netflix. Yeah, well, I, so that's very important. I think that the premise behind that, that we need to be aware of is that performance is contagious. So, yeah. um, Reed, so Reed came at this with the idea. So let me just you know, tell a quick story from the book, right? So Reed's experience had been with his first company, which is a company called PureSoft that um, at the beginning, he gave his employees a lot of freedom. So there was no uh, rules or policies or processes. People just, you know, were running, let's say, fast and loose. Right, right. And then as the company grew, he, of course, complexity increased and people started to do stupid things and coordination became more difficult. And um, some people took advantage of the freedom. So we put in place more policies and processes to better coordinate that complexity, which is what most right. companies do, right? But he found that as he did that, that many people started, uh, like the really kind of creative mavericky people started to leave the company Mm -hmm. and uh, that the company stopped innovating, which I think is a very common experience that entrepreneurial small companies have lots of creativity and innovation, but then right. as they grow, the innovation slows down. And at the end, the co his company was not able to adapt when the, when the environment shifted at that time from C++ to Java because yeah. everybody in the company was so focused on following the processes. 
right? right. Um, so with his next company, which was Netflix, his guiding light was to create an environment where people had a lot of freedom. Uh, but he recognized that if he was going to create an environment with a lot of freedom, he was going to have to have really good employees. Right. <laughs> Uh, because it's usually, and you know, in companies, we put in place the rules and the processes to deal with those employees that are not performing at the top levels. Right. So that's what brings us to this idea that they have in Netflix of talent density, which means that if we have a team where we have a lot of talent, you know, in a small number of employees, then we can give that that team, you know, total freedom to make their own decisions and to spend whatever money they feel is necessary, to take whatever right. vacations they feel they need to, and know that they will, that they will behave responsibly. Right. Um, so that was Reed, that's Reed's guiding light. And my, my interest in this as a professor was the idea that uh, most companies think about performance, a performance problem as an right. individual problem, right? So yeah. like if you are a, a medium or a mediocre employee, well, that's an issue between you and me, the boss, right? right? But what I saw as I started researching other companies around this idea of talent density was really that uh, that this is a systemic problem. And there's this fascinating study, uh, that, this idea, which I put in the book, right, about William Phelps, who's a, a colleague yep. in the OB department at another business school. And he did this study where he invited uh, four uh, MBA students into his lab at a time. And he gave them each a task, a 45 minute task, the group a task. And he rewarded the group financially, depending on how well they performed. I but un unbeknownst to them, in each, in half of the groups of four, one of the MBA students was not an MBA student. It was an, I actor, see. <laughs> an actor named Nick. And, and Nick had been hired to perform in a way that was mediocre, like not great. Right. So he would do things like sometimes he would send text messages to his friends while during the meeting, or sometimes he would say things a little bit jerky, like, you know, have you ever even attended a, a business school class before? <laughs> um, but what's fascinating when you look at William Phelps's re research results was that the teams that had Nick on them, they didn't know he was an actor, right? right. They performed about 45% worse wow. than the teams that didn't have them. That's huge, right? Yeah. And there was also these other things that happened, like when he got a, when he acted bored, then the other people in the group started acting bored and saying things like, oh, when is this going to be over? Right. Yeah. And when he acted jerky, the other people in the group started acting jerky too, not just to him, but to one another. Right. So I think we can really see the principle that if you have a team with, let's say, seven amazing performers and one performer who's just not that great, that you have to move that person out off of the team. <laughs> Otherwise, he, he just sucks down the performance of the entire the entire group. And right. I think that was really the most interesting learning that I had during this research project. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although at INSEAD, most study groups are composed of exceptional uh, people, but okay, you will see some examples of it even in study groups where, say, in one class, uh, somebody is, say, out of it, then the energy of the entire group sort of uh, goes down. Um, right. Bad behavior sort of scales, as you talk about in the book. I had a quick follow-up on this. Does everybody need to be exceptional, or are good people also 
like allowed in this scheme of things? Yeah, so that's of course the premise of this whole thing, which is that most managers take for granted that on a team, you will have a mixture of medium employees and excellent employees, right. even if you recognize that you have to get rid of poor perform performers. But at Netflix, they say adequate performance gets a generous severance, meaning that, you know, on this team, we try to have have team in this company, we try to have all of our teams made up of exceptional employees. And that means, you know, trying to hire well, of course, like all companies do, paying really top, really well, right? Paying top of market to get those best employees. And then making sure that when people are not behaving in an amazing way, that they get moved off of the team so that the performance of the team can spiral up instead of spiraling down. And that, of course, I think is a challenge for, for many managers because, of course, we love our employees and we invested a lot in each of them. So when we have to make a decision to move someone off, especially if they're hardworking or a nice person, that's often one of the more difficult management steps we need to make. Right. Um, but what about the fact that managers or professors or CEOs are also coaches to some extent, like they can help teammates uh, augment their performance? Is, uh, is that not a thing at Netflix? Well, I think that brings us to the second point of the whole uh, no rules, rules philosophy, <laughs> right? So, okay, so they have something they call freedom and responsibility, right? And freedom and responsibility, as we've said, starts with high talent density. So starts with having teams that are made up of stunning colleagues. And what they say is, you know, at Netflix, we are a team, not a family, meaning we yep. don't offer, you know, jo jobs for life, we don't offer that kind of security and stability that is so familiar in many companies. What we offer is the opportunity to be on you know, a, a fantastic team and to have huge amounts of freedom, creative freedom, financial freedom to achieve things that you haven't been able to achieve before. Right. So people who want who want that type of job can opt in. Right? Okay, so that's step one. Now, step two is candor. And, and candor is about the fact that um, if you want to take that team to the, you know, to the highest levels, you then need to have a lot of feedback, right. feedback from the boss to the staff, feedback from one employee to another employee, and feedback from the employees to their boss. Yeah. And once you get that kind of candid feedback going, then you'll see that the entire performance boosts up to another level. Right. Plus the fact that we don't have any policies <laughs> <laughs> means that we need candor so that if people start to take advantage of the freedom that other people on the team will, you know, say, hey, wait, I, I don't think that's okay. And therefore we become accountable to one another. And you talk about uh, this term constructive candor uh, in the book, which I thought was, uh, was so fascinating that um, in Netflix, I believe that not giving feedback is considered to be going against the interest of the country, but uh, company, but it's a particular way that uh, employees there give feedback to each other. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that constructive candor? How might it work for people? Yeah, so I think that that's very, very interesting. And what they do say at Netflix is that if you have feedback that you could provide to somebody that would help them to be more successful, 
whether that be to your boss or to a colleague or an employee, and you choose not to give that feedback, that that is in effect being disloyal to the organization. (laughs) Okay, so this is like a big responsibility. (laughs) And um, that being said, I think often when people hear about this candor, I mean, I know it made me quite uncomfortable when I first heard about it. I didn't like the idea of being in an environment where people would be constantly telling me negative things about my work. It did come across as aggressive, right? At least in the initial initial part of Netflix. It startled me. I have to say throughout the whole time I was there, it startled me, but it always helped me. Every time it happened, it helped me, but it startled me. (laughs) And I mean, I give these examples in the book, but it happened again and again. Like once I was giving a, a, um, presentation at a, to a big group of 500 leaders and I gave the group a, a short discussion to have in small groups. I came down from the stage and as I was walking around, one of the women in the audience was speaking really animatedly to her to her small group. And when she saw me, she called me over. Right? And when I came over, she said, oh, Erin, I'm worried that the way that you are facilitating the discussion from the stage is undermining your point. And then she had just explained to me, you know, what she thought the problem was. And she did this right in the middle of my keynote, right in front of her colleagues. And I had this reaction like, you're telling me this now? (laughs) But I had three minutes before I had to go back on stage. So I was able to really think about what she said. And I recognized that she was right. And I thought of a better way to facilitate the interaction when I went back. And I have to say, you know, it had a huge positive impact on the presentation. So that's really where we see what candor is like. Often it doesn't feel good. And you sometimes wish even that you didn't hear it at the moment. But when you reflect on it, it can be very helpful. The intentionality of candor really matters. At least it helped you land that keynote uh, very successfully and make that very inclusive. And I let the readers read the book to find out uh, what I'm saying. But I think this was fascinating that that very uncomfortable feedback in the middle of uh, that keynote was perhaps the best thing that could have happened to you at that time. Yeah, that's that's right. And so she's following, let's say, the She's following the guide, the feedback guidelines at, yeah. at Netflix. So there's, well, well, what I've been calling the five A's. They don't say that. It's too gimmicky <laughs> for them. But they tell you over and over again what they are. Yeah. And I think that this is a great guideline for feedback in all organizations. Yeah. The, first, the first guideline is that when you give feedback, you need to give it in a way, you only should give the feedback as a gift to others if you really think that it will help them to improve. Right. And the second one, so that's that you give the feedback with positive intent. And the second is that it's actionable so that that person actually has something clear that they can do in order to improve their performance. And then when you receive feedback, you need to show appreciation, even if you don't feel good when you receive it. (laughs) Say thank you. (laughs) But that doesn't mean you have to take it. I mean, you don't have to do what the person's recommending you just have to reflect on it because at netflix you do get a lot of feedback and that doesn't mean you have to be continually doing what everyone else suggests you just have to be reflecting on it so i think that actually leads to a a very high performing type of environment even if it does mean that sometimes you feel a little bit uncomfortable um just the last bit on feedback is does feedback become too much sometimes like are there people who really crumble under feedback even when the other person giving it is perhaps coming from a point of being helpful, but the listener is really taken up. Yeah, I mean, okay, so feedback is an aspiration. (laughs) And of course, humans 
uh, often don't want to, don't like to give or receive feedback because of when we receive feedback, our amygdala, right, which is the most primitive part right. of our brain, sends off alarms, right? If you right. tell me, like when she told me, oh, the, your facilitation is undermining your point, you know, I have this alarm bell that goes off in my amygdala, which says, oh my gosh, you're going to be kicked out of this group, right? That's the human worry. The human worry is to be kicked out of the group. So, um, so of course, then I feel like, like fighting or fleeing. And of course, I know when I give feedback to other people that their amygdala might start <laughs> sending off alarms, so I don't like it either. Um, so what they do at Netflix is uh, they have a, a few ways of really making sure the feedback gets out there. And I, I do recommend this to all companies. So one is that they put feedback on the agenda frequently, yeah. which means that I might come into the office and I might look at my agenda and I might see that, that there's a meeting on my agenda at 3 p.m. and it says feedback with Jane. And, you know, maybe Jane's my employee. <laughs> and when Jane comes in, I know that she's going to ask me for feedback about her. And then she probably has some feedback for me that right. she thinks will help me perform better. So just like finding those moments and having it be normal that on a daily basis you have, or on a weekly basis, you have some kind of feedback meeting on your schedule, that really brings it out. It. And then this, the second one I have to say is kind of weird. <laughs> so the, the second system they use, I mean, when I first heard it, I, I thought it was shocking. Uh, they do these, uh, these, live three, these live 360 feedback right. dinners. Uh, I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like doing that with your colleagues, but they bring together their, their team uh, for a dinner and then each of them takes a, a turn. And like when it's my turn, I, we go around the table and everybody at the table gives me feedback about how they feel I could improve my performance. Uh, so it happens in front of everybody. And I, I thought that sounded really humiliating when I first heard about it. I thought it sounded horrible. But it, it's funny because when I talked to Netflix employees about it, they convinced me of the value so much that I started doing it with my own team. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because what I learned, you know, people would say things like, you know, Aaron, of course, it, it's, you get kind of nervous when you go into those, those dinners. But then once you get started, you see it's going to be fine. Everyone's getting feedback and everyone's trying to help you improve. No one wants to hurt you or to, to punish you. And at the end, you realize, gosh, that was the, the greatest uh, developmental moment of your life. Right. So I actually think that that's a very radical step for feedback, but something that a lot of a lot of teams could benefit from. Yeah, and work life and you know personal life. I mean, people try and segregate, but uh, you and your business partner also happen to be you and you know your life partner, your husband Eric. Do you both give each other a lot of feedback at work <laughs> and personal life? That's a very personal question. <laughs> Oh, well, I, let's say, what will I tell you about my marriage? Let's just say I'm a little bit more radically candid than he is. <laughs> oh, wow. Maybe we should start the feedback dinners with our children. Huh? <laughs> well, maybe. Um, section two, um, isn't it, you already talked about being on top of the market. Um, I loved also this uh, 13 secrets norm. I didn't know that I had 13 secrets, five of which I'd never told anybody. But now, now I know I have a big, uh, big shot business school professor telling me that. So, you know, I mean, I need to ask you a bit more about it. Do people 
who you meet in corporates and you know big companies like Netflix like how do how do secrets uh, inhibit productivity and creativity and how how what's Netflix's response to it well i think it's fascinating because you know, I believe every organization and every leader, if you say to them, do you promote transparency? Yeah. Do you think it's important to be transparent? They will all say, oh, yes, transparency, oh. organizational transparency, that's all good. And oh, they, no. all can, they all can tell you why, right? They can tell you because when you're transparent, it uh, makes your teams feel trust for you. It gives them in for better information so they can make better decisions. It makes everybody feel loyal to the company. But in truth, I think that they are not, um, the reason we don't see that level of transparency in most companies is because transparency is a trade-off in many situations. I mean, let me just get you to think about a few examples. Like, let's say that you're going through a possible organizational restructuring, and that's gonna impact the eight program managers on your team. Now, if it happens, they're gonna to have to change departments, some of them will lose their job. It's only 50% likely to happen. Well, you can be transparent and tell them now. And that will help them to feel trust for you. It will bring a lot of goodwill, but it also might lead them to look for other jobs to get um, all worried and lose their productivity. So right. you have a trade-off, right? I can be transparent or I can promote workplace stability. Yeah. And, you know, that's one example where at Netflix, they really preach, you know, even if it leads to instability on the team, as managers, we need to focus on being transparent in order to help our employees feel like, you know, we, we recognize that they are adults and they can handle the truth. Right. And again, here also the, the analogy between a sports team, not a family becomes a lot more clear um, as, as you talk, to, talk about. Um, you know, in the book, I found it fascinating that the day Sheryl Sandberg came to Shadow Reed, uh, she went back bewildered. Like, did her reaction surprise you or did you expect her to, you know, have such a reaction? Right. So this, of course, leads to, we, we talked about the talent density, about increasing talent density, and then we talked about increasing candor, right? Yeah. And now we have the real benefit. And I don't think, I mean, your listeners may make some kind of judgment about how they feel about the talent density. They might think, oh, that feels too cruel or it's too cold or they might love it. And they might make some judgment also about the candor, like, oh, I love that level of honesty, or I think it feels really uncomfortable. Right. But we can't really make a judgment about the, the, the culture until we get to the, the cake. Yeah. And the cake at Netflix is the freedom. Because yes. once you've got the talent density and the candor, then you can start doing what Reed says calls releasing controls. Yeah. And that means that we can do things like say, okay, all the policies that are at most companies telling people how to behave, we just get rid of them, you know, take whatever vacation you like, spend whatever money you, you feel is necessary, travel the way that you feel is best. I trust you to use your judgment. And those things are, of course, more symbolic. Right. But we can also look at um, decision-making freedom. And that, I think, is where we find the real joy in working in an environment with low rules is that employees are allowed to make you know, big decisions 
without getting approval or needing approval from, from their boss. And of course they say at Netflix, don't seek to please your boss, seek to do what's best for the company. So that brings us to, um, to Sheryl Sandberg's comment, which was that when she, so Reed feels that his job as the, the chairman, the CEO, the founder is not to make the most important decisions but to set context for the company so that the, the employees can make big, important decisions for themselves. Yeah. And so what Cheryl said was that at the end of the day, she said, I can't believe it. You know, I shadowed you all day long. Uh, I attended all of these meetings that you had with different employees and managers in your company. And I didn't see you make one decision the entire day. <laughs> and Reed felt great. <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly what he's going for, an environment where the people at the top are the ones who are making the, the um, fewest decisions. Yeah. And also, uh, Reed is able to take time out for, uh, you know, for, for, for having uh, leaders shadow him. He took generous time out to work with you actively on writing the book. That's at least my impression from, from reading it. Um, it seems like he's very immersed, but he also takes time out to step back and think through some of the critical issues. And is that the same with you as well, Erin? Because I'm sure that there are, there's, after becoming a multiple Financial Times, best ranked author, leading B-School professor and all of that, are you able to also carve out time just the way, say, Reed does for shadowing people? Are you able to carve time out to step back and observe and think through some of the critical issues? Well, as a, as an author, so I'm a professor and a speaker and an author. And when I'm when I'm working at when I'm a professor, <laughs> I'm mostly just busy. <laughs> and when I'm getting ready to uh, to speak at a conference, I'm mostly just busy. But when I'm writing, I have to have an enormous amount of mental freedom in order to write well. And I know, you know, when I, if I want to write something high quality, I can't just give myself an hour and say you have 60 minutes and sandwich it between your class and those papers you have to grade. Mm. I have to have weak blocks where I'm not doing anything else. And I try to not even look at my emails those days until the end of the day. Um, So yes, I believe that freedom breeds innovation and freedom breeds creativity. And that's not just freedom of rules and process, but it's also freedom of the busyness around us. We have to give our brains freedom if we wanna do high quality thinking and innovative writing. So this book is a partnership between two people who are very busy, but also carve out time for deep work, which I think is so important for you know millennials. Most of our readers are our listeners are millennials. It's so important for them to understand how high-performing individuals are able to do that. I asked that just before asking you about the keeper test, which is reinforcing the uh, FNR, the third section of the book. Uh, tell us about uh, the keeper test. Like, uh, who, like, who does a sports team, or who does Netflix really keep, and who can be, you know, left with a generous severance pay? Okay, so the keeper test is a very, um, a very simple idea. And the idea is that uh, if you want to have a high performing team, then on at least a couple times a year that you as a manager need to sit by yourself quietly. Mm. And while you're sitting by yourself quietly, you need to imagine that each person on your team is coming to you 
And so you imagine like, I'll, maybe I'll imagine, okay, here's Cindy and Cindy's at my, my office door and Cindy knocks on my door and I imagine her walking in and imagine Cindy say to me, you know, Aaron, um, I, I just need to tell you, I found a great job at another company. It's not a promotion, but I found a good job and they, I'm, I'm gonna, I've accepted that job and I'm leaving your team and I'm leaving your organization. Mm. And the question is how it, will you as a manager feel when that employee tells you that they're leaving? Will you feel like, oh, Cindy, don't leave. <laughs> if you <laughs> leave, that's a, a huge negative impact for our productivity, for our, our team dynamics. I will do everything I can to fight to keep you. Hmm. And if I will fight to keep you, then I know you are a keeper. That's the keeper <laughs> test. But you know, maybe when, when Jim comes to my office, I imagine Jim coming to my office next and Jim says, you know, Aaron, I found another job. Maybe when Jim says that to me, I'm gonna feel a little bit relieved relieved because it's just not been working out or maybe I'll even feel a little bit excited about who I think I could get for that job and what I for that position and what I think that would do for the team and if you have someone on your team and they came to tell tell you they were leaving the company and you would feel some level of relief or maybe excitement that is a clear sign that that person is not who you need in that spot at that moment. So then you have to ask yourself, have I been candid? Mm. Have I given them the feedback that they need in order to succeed? Right. If they haven't, you better go give that feedback now. Yeah. You haven't given it. And if you have, if you say, you know what? I've been giving them feedback every week for the last six months and I'm still really, I'm relieved. Yeah. Well, then in that case, you have to move to adequate performance gets a generous severance. Right. So that's Netflix, the key word. Netflix doesn't do PIP, right? Performance improvement plans, which is there in many, most corporates, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Well, that's just an example of the type of process um, and one of the many processes at most companies that tie managers down to, uh, to not making the best decisions that they see are right or not giving them the freedom that, that, they, that they need in order to be effective at that time. So that's correct. Instead of, I mean, the, the idea is instead of spending all that money that you would spend uh, taking your employee through a performance and uh, improvement plan that you should take that money instead and just offer it to them as a generous severance say you know thank you very much it was wonderful to have you on to have you as part of us while we work together and you know please go find another job <laughs> something like that um, at the end of the book you talk about uh, uh, something very interesting which is uh, what context did a person fail to set in order for you know Jim to arrive at this situation, so it seems like it's 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 a series of conversations to be had, a missed context uh, concept, context that uh, that needed to be set but wasn't, and you explain it in the most charming words with the help of Little Prince. So tell us a bit more about what should say millennials or young people listening about uh, what context was failed to set, what should they do to prepare for that adequate context. So what they say at Netflix is lead with context, not control. And the idea is that in most organizations and traditional organizations, decision-making is like a pyramid right. with the chairman at the top of the pyramid and then the lower level 
employees at the bottom of the pyramid. And the lower level employees can make small decisions, right. but as decisions become bigger or more expensive or more important, they get pushed up towards the top of the pyramid, right? So that's the vast majority of companies follow that process. Right. Now at Netflix, the decision-making is like a tree. So uh, the context tree. And with a context tree, you have the chairman that's at the roots, that's underneath the earth, setting the context for the employees. Like, you know, these are our annual goals. This is the direction that we're moving. These are the things we need to keep in mind as we're moving there. And then you have the senior vice presidents who are at, well, let's say, the, the, big, the big trunks at the bottom of the tree who are setting more, more context for their departments. And, you know, the next level, at the, the next highest level at the tree until you get to the outer branches, which are the lower level managers who are thinking about all of the context that was set for them by the various level of management, and then who are making the decisions themselves, right? right. So I, I actually think that what's wonderful with that image is you can see that with a pyramid, you can only grow so fast because the chairman is the bottleneck. Right. Versus right. with the tree, you can have an incredible, um, an incredible rate of growth. You can grow as fast as your talent allows you to, right? And the environment allows you to. And I really think that's what we've seen at Netflix, this incredible growth over just a few years. I mean, imagine just in 2016, they, they weren't even in Europe or in, in India. Right? That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and that's happened because of this tree type of, of decision-making process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and is it also because it's a loosely coupled organization? Can this, uh, can this tree structure happen at say less loose, uh, loosely coupled organizations? Yeah, so let me um, just kind of take a step back before I answer that. So most organizational cultures I have found have been built for the industrial era. Even today, we have an industrial yeah. hangover. Yeah. And that means- I love it. I love it. That means that in most companies, we're still overwhelmingly focused on error prevention, replicability, and consistency, which are the values in manufacturing environments, right? Yeah. If I have to create a thousand doses of penicillin, then I need to make sure that there are no errors and, and that everyone is exactly the same, right? Yeah. Um, but in today's creative era, in our information era, a growing number of companies, not all companies, but a growing number of companies are focused not on replicability and error prevention, but instead on innovation, on increased cre creativity, and on being flexible as the environment changes around them. And what we can really see with this, this freedom and responsibility culture is that that's a culture for the new era. Yeah. And I just, I think that's very important that it's not, it's not an accident that we're still focused on error prevention and replicability. 300 years, uh, for the, the industrial era powered the economy for over 300 years. So of course we still have those ideas in our brain. But this is really, you know, a moment to start thinking about organizational culture differently. And that's when we need to lead with context, not control. Uh, do, you, um, do you like jazz or symphony? <laughs> right. So that's the that's the the final the final analogy in the book, right? And okay, so to come back to your, your earlier point, I, I believe that uh, in the 
it, the, the biggest kind of lesson from all of this is that with a culture of freedom and responsibility, things are a little bit more chaotic. Right. They are less, um, they are, they're less controlled. And in a symphony, of course, we have a lot of control. You have each person, each, uh, each musician that has a specific role that's been specifically defined. And people are reading the sheet music, which is like the process in a company that coordinates the musician's behaviors. Right. And that's a beautiful analogy. I mean, there's a, of course, I mean, classical music is lovely. It's a beautiful analogy of how things ran during the, the industrial era. But in today's creative era, it's no longer about this precision and coordination. It's right. about operating a little bit closer to the edge of chaos, yeah. as Reed likes to say, uh, promoting this environment that's more fertile so that we can really get people thinking creatively and innovatively. And that's where we really see this enormous growth that comes from that freedom from rules. Wonderful. So dear listeners, uh, figure out jazz versus symphony for yourself. Erin, thank you so much on behalf of about 100,000 young professionals from all around the world uh, on Network Capital. I want to express my deepest gratitude to you. This was just a fascinating conversation and the book is uh, something that I'll keep uh, coming back to in the years to come. I also thank your partner, Eric, for all his help. And this was fascinating, Erin. Please keep writing. It's totally inspiring for all of us. Thank you. Thanks for the enjoyable interview. Best of luck to all of you.